Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Every kid needs grit. What fresh hell. Laughing in the face of motherhood. I was doing a service to all the other fifth graders. With Margaret Abels and Amy Wilson. I'm sobbing the whole time. A podcast that solves today's parenting dilemmas so you don't have to. Talk about things that scare you. Hello, everyone. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And this week, we're talking about helping kids feel secure in a scary world. (laughs) Will we be talking at any point about helping moms feel secure, Amy? (laughs) I'm asking for a friend whose name is me. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because our guest this week is Dr. Abigail Gewertz. She has a brand new book that's called When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. And we're going to be interviewing her later in this episode. And To my surprise, when I was reading this book to prepare to interview her, what do you think the first like 40 pages are about how we can manage our own anxiety as parents, because that has to happen before we can help our kids put your own mask on first. For sure. Yeah. And we I mean, we've definitely talked about this with like friends who have babies who aren't sleeping through the night. That baby isn't like, well, I'm quite concerned about the state of the pandemic. That baby is like, I'm picking up by osmosis that everyone in this house is freaking out. We have a cat as you all know and love Avril the cat, just a famous staple of the podcast, really. She's been tearing pet food bags open. She's stressed. She does. (laughs) She does like to break in and eat pet food, but she just has certain times. Like when we pack to go away, we're not sitting down and being like, so Avril, listen, I mean, not now, but you know, back in the day, we're heading out for Christmas. We'll be gone for a couple of weeks. Like, but she sees the suitcase. She gets a mm-hmm. vibe in the house, and she, you see her back go up. Like, this is not anxious, as in we are talking too much about what's going on. Well, this was just coming up in our Facebook group this week. If you're a new listener and you don't know about our Facebook group, definitely come check it out. Facebook dot com slash groups slash what fresh cast anyway somebody in the group this week was saying their two-year-old is suddenly very afraid of wind and people were chiming in with lots of good advice but you know i think you have an afraid two-year-old and when you have an afraid two-year-old who's afraid of wind there's a lot of things you can do that are sort of magical thinking that can help right and then but helping your eight-year-old feel less anxious about a pandemic is more complicated because you can't pretend it's not happening. And like the wind example, 
the anxiety may not manifest. In fact, I would argue strongly will not manifest in Dear Mother, I am concerned about the pandemic. Absolutely. It's going to manifest as like nail biting or punching their sister or suddenly slamming a lot of doors and calling you a moron if you live in my house. You know, it's going to manifest in ways that are not. I am expressing to you my generalized concern about the state of the world. I have a kid who I'm not going to give too many identifying details, but this kid explained to me, call me this week that, you know, I have this thing when if I tap something with one foot, I have to tap it with the other foot. And I've noticed that if I do this, I have to do this. And I, you know, said, huh, how long have you been noticing this about yourself? (laughs) About three months. I noticed the same thing about myself (laughs) and it's been a lifelong journey. Yeah, but it's not, you know, it's, We are not crazy that this is a particularly anxious time. It is. And I think what's uniquely good and bad about this is it's the same anxious time for all of us, some more than others, but nobody's immune. It's a great shared experience. And I think that that is something that is very interesting as a kind of touchstone. So I do and always have since I was a kid, basically, some not crippling, but very noticeable OCD behaviors. If I touch this, I have to touch this, you know, like, okay, right before we record, I will touch my mug in this way. Like, it's weird. It's OCD. I work on it a lot. I've had some therapy. You know, I'm doing my thing with it. But it has become for me like the thermostat of my anxiety level. So when Like this week, for example, I would say it's pretty out of control. Like I'm touching things like a maniac, you know? And then there are times where it all but disappears because I'm not super anxious. And I think whether it is like noticeably, specifically OCD behaviors or it is I'm slamming doors more, I'm craving sweets, like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in terms of like regressive behavior, the thermostat for most of us is set pretty darn high right now. Yeah. And I guess one thing that can help with a child who's afraid of wind or an eight-year-old who is a little bit freaked out by seeing masks everywhere you go is to talk about the emotion and then talk about it with your kids. And how does that anxiety manifest? It's the first step towards controlling your anxiety, being in charge of it is to understand like, oh, my heart is beating faster. Oh, there's that thing. There's that thing that happens. And it's not necessarily a source of more panic. It's just something to notice. And I think kids at pretty young ages, you can talk about when your hands get clenched in fists. Ooh, let's do that. What does that feel like? And kind of, you know, play act with them a little bit about the different ways that they can feel tension in their bodies. And you know what this is making me think, which I haven't really thought about before, It's an interesting parallel to our conversation about race that we were having with Deborah Porter, which is like, well, we don't want to inject this topic into our kids' lives. We don't want to bring it up because they seem happy that anxiety and what's going on in the world, it is kind of our job to bring it up because they may not be bringing it up, but that doesn't mean they're not noticing it. Right. And the same with like this generalized feeling of anxiety in the world and the pandemic. And, you know, I have a kid who never talks about it and then maybe once every two weeks at bedtime, starts having a screaming hysterical fit and screaming like, when is this going to be over? I want answers, you know? And it's that hum is there every day. So I want to do like a little like walk down Oldie Locks Lane. Hmm, let's take a walk down Oldie Locks Lane. I think it's easy. We need a theme song. I think we just did it. I, I like it. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> I'm a composer. You know, it is something that as usual, people are like, well, if you don't be such a helicopter parent, like whatever, kids gonna, well, but things are different now. 
back in our day, I'll speak for myself, the newspaper came to our front doorstep in the morning and the afternoon. There were two newspapers in case something different happened during the day. And that was when you got your news. And if there were something very unpleasant in that newspaper, it would have been very easy for my parents to put it face down or hide it or throw it out. And for us, not to see it. Of course, there was no internet. There was one phone in the house. There was one TV in the family room and a tiny TV in the kitchen that was strictly my mom's to watch, you know, whatever. You could control what information your kids were seeing a lot more. And then there's also the problem of if they have their phones, they have the world in their pockets, not only are they seeing a lot more, we don't see what they're seeing. Like my kids consume content in silos that are separate from my own. And it's incessant. Yes. I think this is a huge ages and stages factor, though, because I will say that, like, my kids who are 8, 9, and 11, my 11-year-old less so, but my 8 and 9-year-old are still pretty news immune. You know, they're watching YouTube videos. Like, I'm not saying they don't see it, and clearly they know what's going on, but I think for really little kids, kids younger than ours, like... They can be news immune, but access to the news is not the arbiter of how anxious they are. You know what I'm saying? Well, it also means that just because they're five and you're trying to keep the TV off doesn't mean they're not picking up on a certain hum in the house that's a different frequency than it usually is. And to a certain degree, they might be getting... I mean, I remember that the news... I was an anxious child. (laughs) I mean, I guess I'm an anxious person, but like... I was a very anxious child and the news was a huge source of anxiety for me and I became like super paranoid about seeing the news almost like it became really scary to me. I lived in New York City and I do think it was a factor in like the 70s and the 80s that I think they've talked about this like the news was so sensational then maybe it was because there was only but it was every story was like the worst thing that happened in the tri-state area that day you know it would just be like right one horrifying story after another just fires and yeah (laughs) oh just ever i'm not even gonna go into it in case people have kids in the background but like holy cow it was like every form of nightmarish and then there was satanic panic i mean it was like everything was so scary on the news and um so i did find that like even snippets of the news i was terrified to hear anything because i was like i'm just gonna get some horrible image in my head that i'm never gonna be able to get out and i think for my kids it's like they get little snippets of stuff like They'll see like, you know, whatever, 100,000 people dead and they're like, what's happening? Or they'll see like brief snippets of something bad happening on the news and they're like, is the whole world burning down? Because I saw a picture on TV of a garbage can on fire somewhere. You know, it's they're not able to process the information in a way that makes any sense. Right. So our job is not we were, we've been saying to ourselves and all of you for a couple of months now, our job is definitely not to make it like the pandemic isn't happening and we can't do that. And so we shouldn't do that. And so we shouldn't shy away from talking about anxiety and talking about this moment in an age appropriate way and we shouldn't wait for our kids to ask for that conversation because they won't ask. And I think there's a very interesting element of involving the kids in ways that maybe wouldn't be, it comes to your mind naturally, you know, like it wouldn't be instinctual. That's the word I'm looking for. And I found this, my daughter went through a fairly profound trauma a couple of years ago involving a peer of hers. And so 
a lot of trauma counselors came. And I, I found in those conversations, one refrain was always like, what should we do about this? Why don't you have a conversation with your kid about what they think they would want to do? What would make them feel better? Mm. And it was so striking to me how much that never occurred to me. Like I so saw it in my mind as my job is to make this pillow and somehow make it soft enough so that this trauma never really happened in my child's world. And all of the counselors were like, exactly wrong. Your job is to help your kid look at what happened and decide how to handle it. And that, I think, is really good advice. It's such good advice. And it takes some pressure off us in a way. We're not supposed to present them with a solution. We're supposed to meet them where they are and say, gosh, that sounds hard. And, you know, that must be very sad. Yeah, you're right. It is scary and weird. I'll give you a really concrete example of it because I think it's helpful. My daughter lost a classmate. And so one of the questions was, it was in the middle of the year, what will we do? The child's desk with their picture on it and their name is in the classroom with them. So now what? Like, do you overnight, like just scoot the desk out of the room? Like, And so the teacher and the parents and the principal were having this whole dilemma of like, how do you handle this thing where there's this very constant reminder, but you don't want to leave it there for the whole year? What do you do? And the counselors were like, have the kids all sit down and decide as a class what to do with it. And it would in a million years never have occurred to me. Right. You fix it for them and then you tell them what the fix is. But no. No. The answer is have them fix it. And of course, they started having a very like frank conversation. Well, it doesn't seem right to take it out. And they decided to bring it down to the kindergarten room and give it to a new student and like it's amazing it's beautiful and like look at what they decided and figured out because the adults were brave enough to say to let them be part of what really happened as opposed to shielding it by being like we'll sneak the desk out in the middle of the night and then no one will have to think about this anymore guess what spoiler alert they're not going to stop thinking about it because you took the desk out of the right they noticed right and so you meet them in the emotional sadness of the moment and that's your job, not fixing it. I have to learn that over and over again, I feel like. I'll learn it a hundred more times. Yeah. And we'll all learn it a hundred more times because we so see ourselves as mama bears and protectors and that it is our job to make the world soft for our children. And And that's where I do think that we get into like helicopter parenting and the wrong thing and that we should change our story to like, Unfortunately, this trauma, whether it's this huge, profound trauma of losing a classmate or whether it's the trauma of like, I have to survive coronavirus, which is a real trauma. My job is to say, this thing has been visited upon your life. I wish it hadn't been, but it has been. So now how are you going to handle it? Even with these kids were seven years old, you know? And the first thing you have to do, I think, is work on your own anxiety about it, right? That's the hard part is like, who's going to sit down and have this conversation with the kids? I'm sure that teacher had to do some deep breathing before in the hallway before having that conversation, right? For sure. You have to kind of get yourself back to neutral a little bit, because not to deny the enormity of what's happening, but just so that you can be an effective parent and at the same time reflect like, 
here's how I, I'm doing some deep breathing right now because this is making me feel sad. Like, you know, modeling those techniques in the moment instead of pretending it isn't happening. I'm not saying that that's ever the goal, but being calm in the moment that you're helping your kid meet something hard is really important step one. And when we come back, we're gonna have an interview with Dr. Abigail Gewertz and her new book, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, talks about exactly this and how we do this. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, when I'm dehydrated, I get headaches. I get cranky and I don't feel good in general. Also, I am dehydrated a lot of the time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because being good with the water bottle is one thing, but getting that sodium and potassium with the fluids, turns out that is the key to seeing optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate. Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. Our guest today is Dr. Abigail Gewurz. She's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and she's an award-winning child psychologist and a leading expert on families under stress. Her new book is When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Anxious Parents and Worried Kids. It offers parents a clear and practical guide to discussing sensitive topics in a calm, reassuring, and productive way that will help kids comprehend and process the world around them. Sounds like you are somebody we need to talk to right now, Dr. Abby. Sadly so, Amy, but it's a pleasure to be with you. This book, I mean, the crazy part is this book is not a book that was written with knowledge of the particular blender that spring 2020 would become, right? And this well precedes our current moment. Well, I had this uncanny ability to look four years into the future and I could (laughs) see a pandemic. No, I mean, I wrote this book. I decided to write this book in the fall of 2016. And, 
you know, some of your listeners will remember what was going on in 2016, you know, in addition to the fact that 2015 had seen the largest movement of migrants around the world since World War II. We had spate of school shootings and the advent of lockdown drills. You know, we were becoming more and more aware of the impact of global climate change and severe weather happening all around. We were seeing, I was seeing increases of anxious and depressed kids and parents. And that was backed up by the facts. The statistics have showed that for the last 10 years, anxiety and depression and suicidality in youth has been on the rise. And the funny, I mean, not funny, but the sad thing is it's not as if we're living in a more violent world, for example, at least in the United States, violence has been on the decrease over the last 30 years. So what is going on? And that was the question I was asking myself. And at that time, my kids weren't so little anymore, but I wondered what it would be like with the social unrest and the, you know, the sort of deterioration of our civil discourse, the political polarization, social justice issues, not to mention the incessant sort of voices and social media and nonstop news. What would it be like to be bringing up a young child? And how could parents possibly talk about these things with their kids? And that's why I wrote the book. You know, in the past, I think it's kind of felt like our job is to keep the kids from knowing that the world is a scary place for as long as possible, which I guess is still a nice thing. But this moment, we're all in it together. You leave the house and people are wearing masks. You turn on the TV and you see a lot of social unrest. And so it's harder than ever to sort of keep our kids from understanding that the world does not feel like a safe place for a lot of other people, if not for them. That's right. So should we change our goal then? I mean, our goal isn't then to sort of say, just don't worry about this stuff. Maybe that was never our goal, but it feels like it can't be our goal right now. Right. I mean, there's nothing we can do to keep the world out in many places and on many fronts. I mean, as you said, you know, you take your two-year-old out to get your necessary groceries and they see everyone in masks and you have to do some explaining. So it's harder than ever to keep the world at bay. I open the book with sort of a example of something that happened after 9-11 when my son, my oldest, was just in first grade, where we sort of talked about how we were able you know, to successfully keep the television off. But were humbled when he came home and told us that he'd seen television at a friend's house of people jumping out of the World Trade Center from the 100th floor. And we were just horrified. We were totally unprepared to deal with it. And we were still sort of gasping for air when he said, well, duh, of course, I would jump too. Hmm. And then we were even more horrified. <laughs> and we sort of stopped ourselves enough to say, aha, uh-huh, oh, how come? And he said, well, duh, because of the trampolines. And we just looked at each other. And we said, trampolines? He said, yeah, well, of course, the trampolines that the firemen put out so that people could jump. And uh, really, to me, that's not just a sign of how remarkable kids are when they're faced with horrific events and they create their own trampolines. But really, it is our job as parents to help them with trampolines. So our job as parents is not to pull out the trampoline, but to help them create their own Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we provide the trampoline first, and then slowly, they're able to do it themselves. That's really the story of growing up. 
I loved that story. Can we talk a little bit about when our kids need to talk about something? When our kids are undergoing stress, parents are often the last people that they will tell. So how do we know we have a child who is processing something stressful? I mean, it's easy when it's like, oh, everybody's wearing masks and that makes me feel weird, mommy. But it's a little harder when something's going down in sixth grade that you don't even know about. What are the signs we sort of look for that a a child might need to work something through with our help? Well, you know, signs, signs is it really. And just like our kids are pretty good detectives, they can see through us. We also know our kids pretty well and how they tick and all of our kids are different. And so you'll notice that, you know, sometimes we try not to because <laughs> we don't want to go there, but we all know when our kids are a little bit off, you know, so you might say, well, I heard you around at midnight last night. I'm guessing you're not sleeping so well, or you look kind of tired this morning. So just noticing what they're showing you, even if they're not telling you, gives them a little bit of an opening. And, you know, if they're older and they really don't want to talk to you because teens, well, things are pretty tough for teens these days. The last thing they want to do is be shut up in a house with their parents. But what you can do for teens is you can model a conversation that you want to have, say you and your partner. So, you know, if you say you look pretty stressed and they say, I'm fine, mom, then you've not really been given the opening. But what you can do is at at dinner, you can turn to your spouse and say, it was, I felt pretty stressed today. Wow, with all that stuff, you know, with the riots and the terrible things that we're finding out about what happened uh, last week with George Floyd's killing. And, you know, this is just you know, upended everything. That gives your child, without putting the focus on them directly, an opportunity to jump in. And I, I think many teens will take that opportunity. It's funny because so much of your book, at least the first part of your book, is actually about our own stress and anxiety as parents and how we have to address that first before we can help our children anyhow. And and it was a refreshing thing to me to think about. Why did you structure the book that way? Well, as they say, when you get on an airplane, put your own mask on before assisting others. And, you know, we all have feelings and we know, especially now when we're being bombarded on a daily basis with sort of, you know, horrendous things happening and things that have been going on like the pandemic for months and months. We're all feeling, you know, I've not yet met that incredible person who isn't feeling stressed right now. Right. And what stress does to us is it profoundly affects us, not only in our immediate behavior, but our physical health as well as our mental health. And so, It's really important, I think, for us just to be as effective with our kids as we can be, as responsive as we can be, to have some sense of our own emotions and how different things affect us. And we're all different and we all have our own unique sort of genetic background and experiences, values, cultural, racial, religious backgrounds preferences and values and all that comes together to make us the person we are and we all have different vulnerabilities you know something that truly sets me off because it reminds me of a time in my childhood where I felt so helpless or because of some other reason might be might not set my partner off and so I need to learn first what sets me off and how that makes me feel and the most important reason to do that is that if I don't pay attention to my own emotions I run the risk of letting them completely take me over So you hear something upsetting, you don't take a minute to reflect on that. What it does is a whirlwind through you. And then before you know it, you're saying something or doing something that you later regret. And we call that sort of, I call that in the book, reacting impulsively. And unfortunately, in today's world with social media, you know, 
Twitter. And I mean, it's all too easy to dash something off, shoot it into the ether. And then did I really say that? And we have the chance, even with a one deep breath or a few seconds to reflect on the fact that, boy, I am feeling really irritated. I'm feeling really anxious right now. That allows me the option to choose what I do with that. And instead of reacting impulsively, I now have the choice to respond intentionally. And that's kind of a prerequisite for truly being able to listen to and be present with your kids. It's a lot of work, but I understand it. And something that the book really helped me connect for the first time that I had never really understood before is when I think back on some of the, you know, the times I have really lost it as a parent, those regrettable moments that we can all call to mind pretty easily, that those are largely caused by us being anxious and reacting, as you said, like letting our emotions drive us and reacting out of anxiety, not out of a reasonable response. And had I just paused 10 seconds before responding, I might not have said or done the things that I did. It's I'd never thought of that as being driven by anxiety specifically. Well, I think anxiety really looks different in different people. You know, when we think about anxiety, we tend to think of the person who's biting their nails or sort of withdrawn and fearful. But I also, you know, talk a lot about fear biters, you know, certainly in my practice, my research, fear biters, you know, are, you know, when a dog is scared, what do they do? They bite. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, and different people react differently. And, and some people and some kids and some adults too, when they get anxious and threatened, and they respond in an aggressive way, and not a way that you would typically associate with anxiety. So people have all different kinds of anxiety driven responses. So the book then gets into what are sort of, it's a series of scripts, if you will, not to be memorized, you make that very clear, <laughs> not to be memorized. But it's sort of, here's a situation and here's now maybe not to do it. And then here's how to do it. Tell us why you wrote the book that way. Well, it's a lot more fun that way, right? <laughs> yes, it is. It's very enjoyable, easy read. <laughs> it's really fun. And hopefully, you know, we can all recognize ourselves in that, the what I call the red light where our kid comes in and says something to us, is upset. And we, we, we say, what were you thinking? <laughs> or how could you have done that? And then, oh, no, did I really say that when your kid then storms upstairs to their bedroom and slams the door and you're like, oh, I, now I need to have a do over. Now I have two problems, right? <laughs> now I have two problems. Exactly, exactly. And hopefully we're, you know, we're able to forgive ourselves. And, and I think we teach our children compassion that way as well. And sort of then do it a do over or a retake or, you know, just think about how would I want to do it? And sometimes we are in the enviable position where we do have the time to sort of sit back and say, oh, this is how I want to do it. Sometimes we have the chance to even sort of talk about it with a partner. And then, you know, there's some strength in numbers there. You can get on the same page and you can have two people weighing in on how you want to deal with it. But yeah, the green light is really <laughs> script conversations are not, as someone said to me earlier today. So could I have the book in front of me when I talk with my child? Just open the chapter. <laughs> just surreptitiously open to page 83. Yeah, I think he meant it in a funny English, dry, humored way. But really to put the principles into action and you really need to make it your own. You know, I was talking to my neighbor the other day. She has a seven-year-old. She was thinking, and we're very close to the uptown area of Minneapolis where 
all the stores were boarded up last week. And of course, the community was so devastated about what happened. And there were helicopters everywhere. And and she, we were talking about how to discuss it with her. And she said, you know, I read the script. I have one script. It's a slightly different script. But it's also about the shooting of an unarmed black, in this case, black youth. And she said, you know, so I've read it. And then I just sort of thought, I'm just going to try a few things here. And She said, boy, it was really different and it really worked. I couldn't believe it. So, you know, you try it and these things do take a bit of practice, but you try it and you'd be amazed. I wanted to ask you about your work with military families in particular because we have a lot of military families who listens to this show. So can you tell us a little bit about your work with them and what that's taught you about stress? Well, it has been one of the highlights of my professional career and truly an honor and a privilege to be working with and learning from military families across the U.S. over the last 10 years. And we have uh, been developing and evaluating a program, and we're really gratified that it's been helpful to help buffer uh, parents for whom one or both parents have been sent to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if you can, you know, we've been talking about stress and stress in families. And I'm sure you can only imagine the kind of stress that goes with a parent being sent to war and returning to what military families are calling the new normal. Because when you come back from war, it's it's never quite the same as before you left. And we've learned a tremendous amount about resilience, about how parents are their kids' best teachers, and how to talk about the most difficult things, the most difficult issues related to parents going off to war and and survival and injury and things like that. It occurs to me in your subtitle, you say that these conversations are, in fact, essential, that we can't just sort of stay in the kitchen and they're brooding in their room and let's just hope next week will be better, that this moment and any moment with a lot of stress demands something more from us. Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking, Amy. Why do I think of these as essential? Because our job as parents, and this is a tricky balance, is to protect our kids, bring them up, and then let them out into the world as independent, confident human beings. And when the world feels scary, it's harder to go out there and explore and be engaged. And yet, that's our job. And so, how do we do that? How are we able to protect our kids and slowly let them out into the world. And I think it's been a subject of much debate. You know, I was talking with a lot of radio hosts the last couple of days about helicopter parents, you know, and it's a really tough thing. The more that you, that we parents perceive the world to be scary, the more our instincts kick in to protect our kids. And yet we can only do that to a certain degree. So how we let them out slowly and surely into the world in a way that doesn't make them shy away from it is through these essential conversations, I believe, by engaging our kids in thinking about their worries and their fears and in figuring out ways to address them and to really engage I think we will be able to release young people into the world who are more compassionate, more confident, more independent, and more engaged. And we're going to need that with this generation. The book is called When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Anxious Parents and Worried Kids. Guys, it's a great book. It's available wherever you get books. And Dr. Gewertz, tell us where we can find you. Yes, you can find me online at abigailgewertz.com. That is A-B-I-G-A-I-L, 
G-E-W-I-R-T-Z.com. And on the website, in addition to information about me and the book, there are two big chunks, you know, excerpts from the book. One is a conversation, some guidelines for, and a conversation between parents and their kids about the coronavirus. And the other one in the blog section of my website is a conversation about racial injustice between a uh, an eight-year-old African-American boy and his parents. And I was guided in that conversation by my dear friend and close colleague, Dr. Bravada Garrett Akinsanya. It is such a necessary book for right now. It is so helpful. Thanks for talking to us today, Dr. Abby. It was my treat. Thank you, Amy. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Do you find yourself staying up until all hours of the night, frantically searching for answers online? I thought this was just a simple stomachache, but according to Google, it looks like I've got a bleeding ulcer. Tying yourself in knots by constantly diagnosing yourself and others on the internet? I knew my child was speech delayed. Right here it says he should have 10 words by 18 months, and he only has 8! Is the gaping void of search engine-based anxiety sucking you in again and again? I didn't even know eyeball cancer was a thing, but now I'm like 98% sure I have it. Try Google Calm. 
What? Hey, honey, according to this search, that mole on my thigh, it's absolutely nothing to be concerned about. With Google.com, your every internet-based query becomes an exercise in relaxation. Turns out that new medication I'm taking has no worrying side effects whatsoever. What a relief. Google.com makes parenting a breeze. Guess what, sweetheart? It turns out the fact that our nine-year-old is still having daily temper tantrums is entirely developmentally appropriate. Google.com. Search your way to lower anxiety. Good news! Our house has gone up in value. Again! From the What Fresh Hell podcast. Guys, I really do love this book, and I'm recommending all of you buy it. And that story about the trampolines really got me when I read it and hearing Dr. Abby talk about it, too, that this kid giving her son a chance to make sense of the world for himself, like his optimism and his resilience rushed in to create a story that made him feel safe. And she would never have come up with that story. But, you know, allowing her kid to work through it, he came up with the trampoline story. And we have to help our kids build their own trampolines. And this is a very complicated thing to say. Trauma is its own gift, and you would never wish it on any child. You would love for your kid to have like a nice smooth path through life. But I have a friend whose husband passed away, and she's got four young daughters who are not being supervised as much as usual because she's in the grief of loss. They're in the grief of loss. She's trying to work. You know, there's a lot going on and suddenly they don't have as much parental supervision and they're a little bit more on their own. And one of the kids was going to camp and she, my friend, couldn't get it together to do the camp forms. And this girl who was maybe, I want to say seventh or eighth grade, not a little kid, she called her doctor, Googled the doctor's number, called, got her medical reports, put it all together. And the head of the camp called my friend and said, I just so want to compliment your kid. We have never in the history of running this camp for 25 years ever had a kid do their own medical forms. And like the fact that she could do this, she must be such a mature young woman. And it's like, there is good that comes out of dealing with things and facing down things and character is formed in fire to a certain degree. And so I think if you insist on skipping over the lessons and being like, no, 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 look over here, a shiny object, nothing bad's really happening. You're kind of skipping something that could be really, I mean, good is not quite the right word, but could be formative. It makes them more resilient. Yeah, resilience became one of those kind of annoying buzzwords for a while where everyone's like, grit, every kid needs grit. And if your kid doesn't have grit, and then someday we moved on to steam and we forgot about grit. But, you know, I feel like it became one of those (laughs) gritty steam kids, gritty steam knowing children. Like there's always people who will tell you, like, this is the most important thing. Your kids find the way they are, like relax, everybody. But I do think, you know, a little grit never hurt anybody. One of the points that Dr. Abby made that really stuck with me in this book is that we're helping our kids process their emotions about scary things, about like, oh, are, you know, is someone I love going to get sick? Whatever the thing is, helping them process their emotions about that is more important than the whys and the hows of why that thing is happening. Like, I think I could tend to be the kind of parent who 
with presented with the thing about like, why are these people breaking windows and stealing things? That doesn't help, right, to get into a PowerPoint presentation on the history of protest rather than how does that make you feel? I understand. Yeah, that would make me feel scared if it was happening on my block. You know, just stick with the emotion. Don't stick with the explaining why it's happening. Your kid, no matter what age they are, probably doesn't need that as much as you think they do. I feel that we often sum this up in the great advice from my sister-in-law, answer the question you're asked. Yep. Why are people uh, breaking into stores? It's a big crowd and it got out of control and now it's back under control. Not, well, you see, here's the entire history of social movements. And like the example I always use about this is like, are two boys allowed to be married? Yes, that is the answer to that question. And I often tend to want to be like, you see, the, the answer to that question is yes. Right. And that might be all the information your kid wants at that point, you know? Right. Am I going to die? Someday, but not for a long time. Is there a follow-up question? If there's not, and you don't want to be, it's not an exercise in how to get out of the conversation quickly, but it is an exercise in how much information does this kid really need at this point? And I think that's an interesting parallel to what we were talking about earlier, which is we're not advocating for suddenly sitting down and like giving your kids all the graphs and numbers about how coronavirus is shaping up or how any anxiety producing thing is. You're trying to meet them on their level. And one of the things like we've gotten into doing is at dinner, sometimes one of the kids will be like, I hate coronavirus. And I'm like, I hate it too. What do we hate the most about it? You know, and we kind of act like coronavirus is an entity that we are saying mean things about and it gets kind of silly. But I think those kind of moments are very age appropriate for my kids in a way that like my 11 year old who is getting anxious about it, he is able to like look at charts and see where the numbers are going up and down and that helps him. Some kids need that information, right? And some kids, if you don't talk about it at all, might fill in the gaps with completely inappropriate or incorrect information that makes them more scared. And so you can't avoid the conversation because you don't have the answers. Like I'm thinking of an example in my own life when lockdown drills started happening at my kid's school. I knew it was happening and I thought, should I bring it up? Should I make a bigger deal out of it than it is? Do they have feelings about it? You know, that kind of, am I going to make them more upset if I bring it up? And that night at the dinner table, my then, I think that child was then in about fifth grade. And I just sort of said, did anything, so what happened at school today? Did you guys have anything special happen? And this fifth grader explained to me, yes, that we all had to, you know, go down to, I'm not even going to say what my school's lockdown policies were, but there were certain lockdown policies and they involved including the children being very quiet so that the principal of the school could make an important phone call, at which point I'm like, you know, I have tears, my heart is kind of pounding and I'm trying to remain, you know, present calm to my kid. And I said, wow. How did that make you feel? And he said, well, we talked about it later. And he and his friends decided that it was in case there was a tornado, that that's why this was happening in New York City, that there would be a tornado or an earthquake. Those are the two things they came up with, a tornado or an earthquake. And so I was glad that we, I did not present more information than that kid needed in that moment, right? That was his trampoline moment. He came up with a narrative that made him feel good. And it was not my job to fix that his emotions around it were fine it was actually mine that weren't oh i had the parallel experience except for i was at the school i was in helping with one of the classes and it was like a first grade class these little babas and we're all you know crouched in a broom closet together i'm sobbing the whole time and then 
someone, of course, started to talk. And one of the little kids was like, shh, we have to be quiet in case the robbers come. <laughs> and I was like, they're cute, you know, like, but they're doing what they need to do. And they have the information they need to have probably at that point. And then when someone inevitably explains why our lockdown drill really happens, they're going to come to you with that question. And then you can keep expanding the conversation. And then even you even when you do have maybe kids who are a little older and asking questions, I just got sent the week junior. Do you know what that is? Sometimes our kids see it in classrooms. It's like a newspaper pitched to kids. Their latest episode is out and it's free right now to download. And I'll put the link in our show notes right where you're listening or at whatfreshhellpodcast.com. And it talks about the protests. It talks about the pandemic in sort of grade school appropriate but useful information ways if you have the kind of kid who's asking a question. This would be a good tool for you to work with together. And that was their point of view. They sent it to us and said, you know, if you want to talk to your listeners about this. And I said, well, actually, we're talking about this very topic this week. Their point of view is, if you have a kid who is asking questions, here's some accurate information that won't be more than they can handle. Yeah. And that is a good outlet as well. I will fully disclose that my sister works at Pinna, but Pinna is a company that has a podcast. It's a podcast for kids. And they have a podcast that explains the pandemic to kids. You know, it's coronavirus for kids. And that's a very individual call. Like some of my kids want that much information and some of them don't. And so it's like, do you want to listen to this? Or if you're asking questions, there are lots and lots of resources to help you explain stuff to kids. And don't feel like you're goofing up if you have trouble explaining hard things to kids. Like my kids were born well after 9-11 and I was in Manhattan during 9-11 and it was this, you know, huge event in my life. But like, what day do you happen to bring that up to your kids? It feels weird that my kids don't know about it, but like, where's the day that everyone would be like, so guys, here's what happened. It's like, it's tough. Yeah. And so I searched out some resources. Like, when should I tell my kids about 9-11? I don't know. It felt like a really weird thing. And we fly a lot. I didn't want them to get scared. I mean, you're not goofy if you don't automatically know the answers to this stuff. It's super complicated and hard. And we're definitely not saying that as a parent, by the time your kid is in first grade, you should have had conversations about every bad thing in the world, right? <laughs> no, please don't do that. All right, kids, tonight's <laughs> right. lesson. Because for us, for you and me, we're New Yorkers, we're New York local anyway. And so like 9-11 is something you do want to have an age appropriate conversation about because they will hear about it sooner or later, sooner than a kid who lives in Ireland or something, you know, but I feel like this is a debate I hear a lot. I'm not really of the mind that my kids need to hear everything from me. I learned a lot from my friends and I got some really bad information from them. We've talked about this before. If you are not longtime podcast listeners, the hilarious image of young Amy <laughs> explaining to all the other kids the facts of life on a fire escape somewhere in Scranton, Pennsylvania is hilarious. Yeah, it was for free, too. I was happy to do it. I was doing a service to all the other fifth graders. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. And I don't think that I feel like sometimes it's like you don't want your kids hearing this from other kids. Of course, they're going to hear stuff from other kids. And my kids come home and say the dumbest things. And I'm like, who? told you that. I mean, just such bad facts, guys, like fake news. This is horrible. But a lot of times it's funny. Sometimes it's more serious. But that is a lot of the ways kids get information. That's not a terrible thing. But you just want to be having enough conversations that you can re-steer some stuff that's wrong, you know? It just really helped me talking to Dr. Gewertz and reading this book and researching this episode to realize, okay, like the job is not 
to fix it, to make them feel better. It never was. The job is to talk about things that scare you and talk about how scary things make you feel. And then eventually, in her book, it's sort of like, eventually you come around. She has a great example in the book of a kid whose former boyfriend, a high school kid, has shared some very inappropriate photos with other members of the school. And in this book, it's like, okay, sit with the kid's feelings first. Yes. Did she exercise bad judgment? Yes. Is that what you're talking about today? No, you're sitting with her in her fear that like, I can never go back to school again, right? I can never show my face in public ever. Sit with her in that, acknowledge the feeling, talk about how scared she must feel. And then what are some things that you think you could do about this? I think it is so about a reframing. There used to be an old like exercise guru phrase that was pain is weakness leaving your body. Like that's this thing that someone would scream at you while you were exercising. (laughs) And I feel like what we've come to is like fear is strength's opportunity to enter your body, you know? And we're all gonna get there. Like everyone is going to face adversity and become stronger from it. And so we never want those moments to come, but when they come, like change your story from it is my job to hold this at bay to it is my job to help my child strengthen themselves at a time like this. Solved it. Solved it, guys. Solved it. (laughs) I mean, that really summed it up. Thank you. Boo. Yeah, guys. And if you want more incredible insight and wisdom like that and silly metaphors, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash whatfreshhellcast. And we're always posting stuff and, you know, talking to you. We're also on Instagram at What Fresh Hellcast. We're on Twitter at WFH Podcasts, just to keep it interesting. And I'll put the links and an easy link to buy Dr. Abigail Gewurz's new book, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. You can find that on our website, whatfreshhellpodcast.com. And guys, come to YouTube. We're on YouTube now, people. Oh, right. Yeah. Search What Fresh Hell Podcast on YouTube. And when you see our faces, you'll be like, oh, that's their YouTube channel. Because the YouTube link is confusing and I'm not going to share it, but just search us. And we have funny videos and follow us and subscribe. That'll help you feel more secure in a scary world. When you're feeling anxious, what could be better than watching <laughs> us make silly jokes on YouTube? That's the cure-all, people. We're here to solve it. And stay calm, guys. Stay calm and stay well. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 